Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for uh, you know, a lot of text messages from people and folks reaching out to me. Um, for those of you who don't think that there does exist such thing as a man cold, um, it does exist. Mine gave me 103 fever and pneumonia two weeks ago. So um, especially want to tell, uh, say thank you to Tom. Tom got the call from me midweek uh, two weeks ago uh, about switching uh, preaching. So uh, that's why I'm preaching this morning um, and not last week. So uh, it is incredible how many folks are, are sick, uh, recovering from so many things. So we continue to pray uh, for those who are, are healing. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Isaiah 9. We're going to be in Isaiah 9 this morning, verses 1 through 7. A very, very familiar passage uh, for us uh, this time of year. Isaiah 9 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Grass withers, flowers fade, the word of the Lord is forever. Let's pray. God, if I confess, I am not worthy to preach this text. This is an incredible read of your entering into our mess of the most significant moment in redemptive history of the work that you have done and are doing to bring peace to mankind. God, I pray that we would have ears to hear your word. I pray that your word of truth would stand louder, would be a louder voice than everything else that we are tempted to listen to this week and today. God, I pray that we as your people would find comfort and joy in what this verse means for our relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Man, well, as we get closer to Christmas, I've been reflecting on this text a lot, and I'm always reminded how this time of year, between watching Christmas movies, seeing advertisements, having conversations with friends, Christmas seems to bring out the idea for everyone, Christians and non-Christians alike, that not all is right in the world. Christmas seems to, to bring out in our culture that there are certain things in our world around us that, that need to be fixed. 
And this is the reason why I think Christmas kind of sells so well, because we're all kind of walking around in a sinful, broken world and, and just kind of know something's not right. Maybe it's, it's various things. And, and we look at Christmas as a way, maybe we don't say this out loud, but we think, man, for that week, those two weeks, everything's going to be right. I, I remember I was always guilty of this and kind of a, a weird example in college. I was that, that person where I started Christmas music listening like in November, Okay, and I realize that offends a lot of you. Um, but one of the reasons why I did it is because when I started to have exams and papers and all those things, I would start listening to Christmas music because it would remind me that eventually this work was going to be done, right? It reminded me that Christmas is coming, there'll be a rest from my labors. And so I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe your family is falling apart and you're wondering if the holidays can help mend. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety, with depression, and, and knowing Christmas is coming and is going to supposed to bring joy this season. You're looking for it to help you get out of that funk. One of my neighbors said, uh, or one of my friends said that his neighbor goes big with holiday decorations, and he was putting up like a family of snowmen, and my friend commented on, on the family of snowmen, said he liked it, and the neighbor said this. He said, yeah, family, that's what Christmas is all about. And that's what we're talking about. Not that those things are bad, not that there's joy that comes with, with Christmas movies, with, with decorations, but there's a sense in which we all kind of know what's wrong, and we can use things like Christmas to fix something. I, I thought of this. Um, I, I was watching, I watched for the first time uh, last week or two weeks ago, I watched a lot of movies uh, being sick, and one of them was the kind, I think it's the newest Grinch movie, the one that came out in 2018. And there's a line in there that I think really captures kind of what I'm talking about, that if, if we were honest, this is kind of what it looks like when we look for Christmas to fix something. So as you know, the Grinch story, right? The Grinch hates Christmas. He, he goes on a tangent and, and steals Christmas, and, um, and then he gets convicted, right? His, his heart changes three sizes, and, um, and he comes back, and he, uh, in this, this particular movie, he's confronted by a who, and the who's kind of looking at him for that, that answer, right? That, hey, what did you do? And why did you do it? And this is, what, this is what happens. And I want to kind of use this of what it looks like when we kind of steal the true meaning of Christmas. When we kind of ask Christmas uh, something that it was never really meant to give. Here's, here's what the Grinch's line was at this moment when he's confronted. Uh, he has to give an explanation. He says, it was me. I stole your Christmas. I stole it because I thought it would fix something that happened a long time ago, but it didn't. I heard that line, and I, and I thought of my text, and I thought, man, that is what this text is talking about. That this text actually explains there was something that was broken a long time ago. And perhaps not just with Christmas, but a lot of the things that we do, and the reason we do it is because we're looking for a fix for an ultimate fix of something that happened a long time ago. And we're going to look at this text and how this text explains what was broken. And where Isaiah giving this, this, this prophecy saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you, we're going to pinpoint what was actually broken and what the fix was. And we're going to do this through three points. We're going to first uh, look at the darkness to blame, point one, and then a sun to behold, and then third, a future to claim. 
I gotta, I gotta be honest, I tried so hard to get the second point to rhyme. Um, all your pastors, we met, we deliberated, we could not think of how to do it. So sorry, my points don't rhyme, but um, that describes what I want to look at in order. Um, so a darkness to blame. First, I'm not going to give a lot of context for Isaiah. We've had uh, a couple weeks now of preaching through Isaiah. You've heard some of the context, but a little refresher that people of God have been divided into two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom, the southern, you've got Israel, you've got Judah. And you know at this point that Isaiah is a prophet chosen to uh, preach to Judah. And oftentimes, and, and prophets, they're kind of their, what, what their, their goal was, was it was to bring the word of God, to bring God's word to the people. And oftentimes it was to uh, bring judgment if the people would not repent, or it was to speak blessing if the people were to walk in God's ways. And in chapter 8, we have a lot going on right before this. In verses 16 to 18, you know, I'm not going to read, I don't have time to, but verses 16 to 18 is basically talking about kind of a remnant, kind of what it would look like for a people who would follow God's word, right? And then in verses 18 to 22, there's this warning and a prediction of what's going to happen. Isaiah's warning of a, a coming invasion from the Assyrian army. And so at this point, things look dark. If you were a Jew back then, you would have at this point seen king after king failing, breaking God's law, bringing judgment, not just on that king, but on everybody. And you would have experienced the consequences of breaking the covenant of God over and over again. You would have experienced God's judgment by other nations coming in and, and conquering the people. At this point, you probably would have been pretty worn out, wondering, are the promises of God still there? How is it that we're going to be a people of God? And there's a word in verse 1, chapter 9, that I love when this word appears in Scripture. The word but, right? The word but in Scripture oftentimes is a turning point. It's kind of saying, okay, things are going in one direction. And then when you see the word but, oftentimes it's about to describe a turning point, And it's a turning point that God is going to do. That some action by God that is going to stop the direction of things and is going to take it in a different direction. And so look at what it says. This is huge. Our text starts, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. So what does this verse mean? The her is actually referring to Israel. It's referring in one sense to chapter 8, but also everything up to this point. The word gloom can also be referred to as darkness. And for Israel, this land mentioned of Zebulun and Naphtali were the ones who experienced the, the most oppression, right? They were kind of on the northern side of Israel, and so they were the first ones when enemies would enter to conquer, right, and to defeat. So they experienced the most oppression. But even more so, we have to understand this verse by what was really going wrong for Israel, right? Because for Israel, it's not just that what was going wrong was, well, they forgot to kind of recruit for their army, or they forgot to empower the most up-to-date technology and, and have all these strategies for war. What actually was going on for Israel is found earlier in Isaiah in a summary, a great verse. Isaiah 2.15 says this. It's a car 2.5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
Judah's greatest need, the darkness that was happening, was because over and over again they failed to walk in the light of the Lord. So what's your greatest need this Christmas? You see, I think sometimes at Christmas and holidays and other promising events, we use them because we think it will fix something that happened a long time ago. And what happened a long time ago here is that mankind rejected God. Mankind in the garden said, not your will, Lord, but my will. Mankind, through Adam, we all fell, and we found the promises of sin, the lure of sin, more attractive than the promises of God. That's what was happened. That's what the true darkness for Israel, and that is what this verse is saying, one day there's going to be no more gloom for Israel. And there's a point I want to make here before moving on to point two. Sometimes when I'm in conversations with, with Christians, looking at social media articles, I think there's a tendency to do something with this. There's a tendency to have more distaste for the sins of the culture and the country more so than our personal sins. Now, I understand that we have a, a nation, a culture that has rejected God, that a lot of times the consequences are uh, as a result of a people turning away. That's certainly darkness. But, but let me ask it this way. What gets you more upset when a nation, a country enforces some kind of law or has a stance on something that is not biblical or when you realize that your sin meant that you spit in the face of God? meant that God had a plan for you to walk in the light of the Lord. And you took that plan and said, God, I can handle this better. God, my, my desire to sin is more attractive right now than you being my heavenly father. And so it's not to say that as we look at the world around us that we shouldn't mourn and lament. But part of what was happening within Israel is that throughout the Old and the New Testament, there was this kind of more and more specific need of application, of suddenly realizing, okay, it's not just that the people need a sacrifice, it's not just that we as a people have walked away and broken God's law, but I have broken God's law. My heart needs to be replaced. So what is it that's going to get Israel and us out of this gloom, out of this darkness? It's a son to behold. It's a son to behold. I, I have an advantage with this passage. You remember two weeks ago, Jonathan preached, um, and uh, he spent a lot of time having to wrestle with, okay, how much is fulfilled now, later? And, and there was different kind of commentaries uh, that kind of disagreed with some of that. For me, uh, there's no question on this. In fact, Jesus quotes this in Matthew 4, directly fulfilling this part in Isaiah. Here, here uh, Matthew 4, 12 to 16, says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, same as in our passage, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Before moving on to kind of the climax here, verse 6, 
have to ask ourselves, how come if Isaiah was wanting to kind of really land this plane of like, hey, I'm talking about Jesus, why did he not write that people who walked in darkness have seen Jesus? Why did he not write those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has Jesus made himself known? Why did he not just get it over with, right? Here's what I think. It's because Jesus wanted to show us who he came for. He came for both Israel and us as the new Israel. All of those of us who looked at uh, chapter 2, verse 5, when we read, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, we look at that and we say, oh no, we didn't do that. We were supposed to do that. We didn't walk in light, but we walked in darkness. We walked in the gloom. We found the gloom more attractive than the light. That's what God called us to do, but we didn't. And the longer we live and we try, the more we realize how helpless we are to perfectly walk in the light of God. And what's more is that it's not like we were unaware of the plans that God had for us. It's not like we realized, oh, there was a standard that we should have been following the whole time. God has been very clear to put on our hearts and he put on Israel, this is the expectation that I am your God and you are my people, that this goes well for you if you obey my commandments. Isaiah says, on them a light has shone. In your deepest darkness of seeing your sin and ways you fall short, Isaiah is saying, a light has shone there. And John actually describes what happens when this light comes through. Well, listen, he says in John 1:4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This passage in Matthew 4 is significant. It means that Jesus, beginning his earthly ministry, look at what's happening. He's saying the first place that Jesus needs to go is the ones who experience the most darkness. Jesus is first, right after this, his first decision is to actually go the ones who are experiencing the most gloom, the most darkness, and the most oppression. Jesus, in his fulfillment of this for us, came to shine light in the darkness of the deepest places of your life. And the greatest darkness is not your need for comfort. It's not having the perfect family or more money or the perfect job or everything going your way. It's yours and my own sin. That is why so many elements of the Old Testament were trying to, to bring this out, that it wasn't just a nation in need of saving grace, but it got more and more specific, trying to get across to the people that a sacrifice was needed for them specifically, personally. This is a huge concept in the Old Testament that uh, theologian B.B. Warfield has this kind of pretty famous quote about what this is like of Old Testament to New Testament revelation. He says, the Old Testament uh, is a room fully furnished, but dimly lit. And what he meant was uh, the, all of the fundamental elements of the gospel were revealed in the Old Testament, but waited for the coming of Jesus Christ to fully reveal the glorious light. Do you realize that for the world, this is a cataclysmic entry of redemptive history that made something once unclear crystal clear? Uh, here's why I think this is hard for us to grasp what this would have been like for the hearers of Isaiah, Israel, to understand fully what was going on. If you and I have to navigate a room, right, pretend like in your house, um, it's the middle of the night, maybe you don't want to turn the lights on, 
You and I navigate a room, but we actually navigate it knowing what's around, right? At some point, the lights had been on, and maybe we turn them off, but that wasn't the case for Israel. The lights of fully what God was doing, of how salvation was going to come to a people, had never been on. And so maybe they bumped the, the dresser of the sacrificial system, right, or, or Passover. And so they kind of knew some things were there, but they didn't know how it was all connected. And Isaiah, right here, is giving them a prophecy with the lights on. He's saying, I know you haven't had this before. I know you're kind of confused on what's happening, how it's going to happen. Let me flip the lights on, right? And, and this verse we've been waiting for, the one that you've been hearing at Christmas Eve services your whole life, is the lights flipped fully on. Here it is, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus fulfilled this by taking on flesh and coming as the most vulnerable way to enter this earth and still actually be a human. You, you wonder if reading this part earlier, verses 3 through 5, right? Hearing this line, Israel was thinking, yeah, here comes, here comes the, right, the greater prophet. Here comes Jesus. He's going to free us. You have all this kind of warlike language of the rod of oppressor, and he brings up the, the battle of of Midian, which if you know is, was this incredible conquering of God using 300 men to defeat 135,000. In verse 5, it talks about enemy uh, boots, like blood-stained boots and everything, and, and there's all this language. And if you're Israel, you're like, yes, bring on Thor. Here he comes. And then you read in verse 6, um, it's going to be a baby. It's going to be, it's not even going to be a teenager. It's not going to be a 10-year-old it's going to be someone that is not potty trained. It's going to be the most vulnerable person you can have while still being a person. And so what about in God's redemptive plan, did he see our greatest need was in verse 6 for us to read thousands of years later that the greatest fix to our problem is going to be for the text to say, for to us a child is born. Israel knows, Isaiah knows rather, because your darkness needs this child. This isn't an objective child, but this child has come to us for a purpose. He had to be a child because the first child, the first human that represented us failed miserably. Now I realize that this is probably not news for you, right? I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I'm preaching mostly to people who grew up in the church who know this, but, but you can't help but bring up that everything that the Son did after this and what it means for our redemption, that after this, Jesus was born, that by being human, he represented us. He had the thoughts that we should have thought. He said yes when we should have said yes. He said no when we should have said no. He went places we weren't willing, and he didn't go places when we did go. He talked to people as we should have talked, and he didn't talk to people as we often speak. And in faithfulness to his father, recognizing he was born just to die, rejected by God, that he wouldn't have to, that, so that we wouldn't have to stand before God guilty. I was reading yesterday in Hebrews 8, and I was reminded of how the book of Hebrews, just what it does to kind of give clarity to why the coming of Christ is so significant in the new covenant compared to the old. Here it is. Hebrews 8, 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry 
that it is as much more excellent than the old, uh, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. This is our covenant with him. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And listen to this last part. I love this. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, do you, do you, I know we've heard this passage a lot. Sometimes I tell my, especially my youth students, when we hear familiar passages we can kind of go into autopilot, right? Anytime someone says, open up to Genesis 3 or Genesis 1, right? You're like, all right, I know where this is going. But, but don't miss this. Don't miss the significance of this chapter in Isaiah 9 of what it meant for the people and what Isaiah was trying to do. He's trying to get, a, 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 to get it clear to them, saying, this is it. Like, this is the main event. Everything that you have seen before now, it was all pointing to this. Jesus is what we have all been longing for because he's the greater Moses that is not just going to lead your people from physical slavery, but he's actually going to deliver us from our greatest need of spiritual slavery. Jesus is the better David that will lead his people in full righteousness, that, that he's going to do this without sin. Jesus is the better prophet because he can declare what the will of God is because he is God. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better priest because one day he's going to go and he's going to bring both together. He's going to have a one-time sacrifice once and for all, that he's actually able to enter into the places where man can't. And he entered for you. He entered into the place of God. He tore down the curtain and he made truly the dwelling place of God with man. That is what Isaiah is trying to get across, and that is what we actually need this Christmas. That is, that is what was broken in us, of wondering how is it that continuing sinful man is going to be restored to the fellowship of God? And so what do we do now in light of this? This is maybe oversimplifying it, but I, I think it's this. We behold him. We behold this sun. We, we belt out the Christmas songs. Our hearts declare that the king has come. We get excited for Christmas, not because of, of, of secondary fixes, but we get excited because it reminds us that our greatest need was fully taken care of on the cross. That, that we know when we read this in Isaiah 9, we have the full revelation of Scripture that we can say, I know what happened next that not just that this baby was born, but that he lived a perfect life, that he faced the judgment of God so that we no longer have to stand before judgments, that Christmas coming is a message that desperately the world needs, 
that the world does not just need more Christmas decorations. They don't need a perfect family moment. They need this Savior to enter into our mess, to fully take care of our relationship with God, and that this Savior does it permanently. That is what our hearts need. And that is what the Christian life is about, looking at this passage and saying, my deepest, darkest longings are taken care of. That God, what he did through Christ, is he fixed something that was broken in me a long time ago. And yes, I'm still going to experience hardships. It doesn't mean that we're going to get out of this fallen, broken world without trials. But not only did Christ take care and secure our salvation, but even those other things, the things of family breaking down, of sickness, the cancer diagnosis, that God is making all things new through Christ. And so even in those things, there is still hope. As I think about this, I think this sparks a practical application. There's a lot of it, but one of the things is that we cannot be scared to enter into each other's mess. That as we look at, we don't like doing this, kind of going from one status and being willing to kind of get our hands messy. A reminder of this, I don't even like coming home from work and entering like my living room mess, right, if my kids mess things up. And yet, imagine if Christ treated me like that. Imagine if God said, well, Tim Pitzer, this is your mess. You messed it up, now you fix it. No, Christ came in. You cannot have, have gotten a, a, a wider breadth of where he came from to where he entered, and he did it for me. And so as we look at being a loving fellowship, as we look at being a church, this is the reason why we get involved in each other's mess. This is the reason why we forgive each other why we have conversations, why we move towards the broken, why we move towards each other even when it costs us something, because Christ saw us worth it to come down and to fix what was broken in our mess. I know Jonathan said, grab a line from this, this Christmas hymn. This was actually my sermon even before this morning. This line from Hark the Herald Angels saying, I cannot think of a better fitting description. It says, mild he lays his glory by, Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. And as the song states, he's not just a baby, but he's a king, leads to the last point, real quick. Got three things within this, real quick. I'm going to fly through them. We've got a future to claim. Look at what our future is, okay, in verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. First, here's what the future is like. We have this, this word government and it's peace, and we're told that it's going to increase. And this word government can also kind of be translated dominion. So Isaiah is saying, hey, this, this king that's coming, his, his reach, his rule is going to have no end. And it's kind of tied to that previous line, the prince of peace. So so Jesus' rule is going to have no end. We've already talked about within Israel why this is good news, that they were used to um, even good kings having a temporary rule. But, but Isaiah is saying, hey, the way that this one's going to rule is it's going to have no end. I think about our current context. We have always had rulers in different categories of our lives that were less than ideal, Right? But this verse teaches us that there's a day that is coming when one will rule 
and have a dominion and authority, and it's going to be an increase of peace. But how will his peace know no end? He will do this by everything mentioned in verses 4 through 5 and 6. Jesus will break all oppression to his people. Think about how he does this. He's not a king who just sends his troops on the front lines to fight the battle needed, right? This is a king who actually left his throne and fought the battle for us to guarantee that the battle will be won. And now our future is actually going to be spent enjoying the benefits of the battle that he fought forevermore. But then Isaiah doesn't just say what he's going to do, but he's going to say how he's going to do this. It says he's going to do this with justice and righteousness. You see, Jesus isn't a king where he says, well, the ends justify the means, so I'm going to do some sketchy things as your king, but don't worry, it's all for the greater good. No, everything that Jesus does is going to be done in justice and righteousness. I can't help but think here of the word justice and our standing before God. We may be tempted sometimes to think that God just kind of forgave our sin, but just kind of forgot about our sin, and that's actually not what happened. That God actually made sure justice was satisfied, and he satisfied justice by having Jesus take up a cross and satisfying the justice needed before God. But then lastly, and this, this line, if you're like me, I didn't quite understand what this word meant. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what does that mean? The, the phrase zeal of the Lord is actually also translated the jealousy of the Lord, the jealousy of God. So in other words, this phrase, that last phrase um, in our passage, can also be read, it is because of the jealousy for his people that God will make sure all of this will happen. So what is it about the jealousy of God that will guarantee this? I'm going to say this real simple. God looked at you and said, I want that back. God looked at you and said, I'm not content having Tim Pitzer separate from me for eternity. Why? I don't know. It says, because God, being rich in mercy, looked at us, not because of anything good in us, but said, I am jealous for this person. I am jealous to have this person united to me. And so as I close, I want to ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that this Christmas, what you really needed fixed the most, is something that happened in you a long time ago? And it's exactly why a child was born, that your gloom, your darkness has seen a great light. But you know, when I read verse 6, I can't help but kind of connect it with something. I don't know if you caught it. I've never thought about this until this week. That as, you know, this verse we've been hearing our whole lives, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Well, the child that was given to us was not just a child, but it was actually someone else's child. That it was actually God the Father's child. And look at that last phrase, a son is given. That should sound familiar to you. Because each week as we celebrate all that we have in Christ, all of the redemptive benefits of being standing before God and being righteous, we go to a table. And those words... Uh, that we often say that this is the body of Christ given for you. You can't separate that from this passage, that the son that was given would live a perfect life 
and would give everything to guarantee we will be united with God. John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. God, we, we hear this, we read this in Scripture, and we know that we're going to turn around and we're going to make other problems the ultimate. That we're going to consider a lot of times Monday morning, maybe things at work are our greatest need. Maybe a, a quiet, peaceful house for family vacations to go well. God, those things are important, but this passage reminds us that there's something to be found in basking in the victory that you gave us. God, we are eternally grateful that we will spend eternity with you because of what happened after this passage. God, thank you that you saw fit to redeem a people that were enemies of you, to redeem a people that did not ask to be redeemed. And God, you did this at great cost to yourself. We pray that our lives now would be offerings of thanks, would be spent understanding more and more every day the implications of how then we should live when we realize that someone gave up everything for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.